So Matthew chapter 20 is where we're at this morning. But for the sake of content, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll get a, a Bible in your hand. But for the sake of context, we're going to start our reading this morning from Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. And Matthew writes, Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what should we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I'll give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, uh, you'll receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received the denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, these last men who worked only one hour and you made them equal to us who were born the burden in the heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, he said, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. So if you're visiting with us this morning, we've been looking and studying through the Gospel of Matthew. I'm very thankful for the Word of God, for every single thing that God has intended to accomplish in our lives through His Word. And it's for this reason we study the Bible, so that it can wash over us, so that it can shape us and fashion us in, into the image of Jesus Christ, God's Son. And as we come to Matthew chapter 20, we come to this parable that Jesus uh, spoke, and it's known as the parable of the laborers. And as is the case with all the parables, it's important for us to recognize the context in which it was given, right? Jesus gives these parables or illustrations in a particular situation or circumstance. And it can be you know, very hard to understand what it is that Jesus is saying uh, through these parables if we don't understand the situation or circumstance that he's addressing or that he's seeking to apply the parable to. 
And if we don't understand the meaning of the parable, then we're unable to apply the parable to our lives. Now, Jesus has just finished speaking to the rich young ruler in regards to obtaining eternal life. And Jesus told him that it requires a person to become a follower of his, uh, to become a disciple of his. And to become a follower of Jesus Christ, you know, what you have to do is you have to place your faith in him as your savior. And Jesus not only told this rich young ruler what was required to gain everlasting life, you know, but then Jesus puts his finger on the one great uh, area of sin in his life that was keeping him back from following Jesus. And the great obstacle in the life of the rich young ruler was his love for money. Money and riches and possessions had become his God. And Jesus called this young man to deal decisively uh, with it. And Jesus, in his, you know, uh, dealing with this young ruler and the call to deal decisively with this idolatry and sin, right, that was keeping him uh, from following Jesus, you know, isn't something that Jesus uniquely spoke to just this one guy, right? Almost all of us, and that's the intention uh, that the Holy Spirit has, right? When we hear about putting faith in Jesus Christ, when we hear what it means to become a disciple of his, um, to become a follower of, her, of his, immediately our mind can be filled with the thought of one or two specific things. The great sin that's present in our life or the idolatry and the master passions that we worship in our lives. Both of which, you know, we need to walk away from to become a follower or a disciple of Jesus. You know, we all have to deal decisively with these things, you know, as we're making a decision to place our faith, to place our trust in Jesus Christ. Well, when this rich young ruler was confronted with his sin, you know what, he turned around and he walked away from Jesus. And don't you know that that just broke the Lord's heart to see him walking away from Jesus, right? It broke the Lord's heart because this young man was unwilling to turn from his sin to enter into a relationship with Jesus. And he walked away from Jesus and Jesus then declared to his disciples, and it's apparently no secret in heaven, that the salvation of the rich is something that's very, very difficult, right? Principally because of the tendency of the rich is to place a trust uh, in their riches, along with um, the temptation to make wealth, to make riches, and a certain lifestyle that comes with it, you know, their master passion, right? But Jesus went on to say that nothing is impossible with God. And I tell you what, praise the Lord for that. I frequently need to be reminded of that, that nothing is impossible. Nothing is too difficult for our God. Well, Jesus says that nothing is impossible with God, that he has the grace to save anyone who desires salvation, whether they be rich or poor. And now, as the disciples are listening to this conversation that Jesus is having with this rich young ruler, and as they watch this young man walk away from Jesus, 
Peter speaks up in chapter 19, verse 27, and he's not speaking only in reference to himself here. He's speaking also on behalf of the rest of the disciples that are with Jesus. And Peter says to Jesus, see, we have left all and followed you. Peter's speaking what's true here. This is the truth, right? They left everything behind in order to follow Jesus. And then Peter asked Jesus, therefore, what should we have? What Peter is saying is, Jesus, we're willing to do what this rich young ruler was not willing to do. We've left everything in obedience to your call, and now we're living, you know, day to day, right? He's rejected your call to follow you, and he keeps to, he, he gets to keep on being rich. You know, it seems to be a little bit backwards to us. You know, what do we get out of following you? That's what Peter's saying, right? Now, let's just be perfectly clear. This isn't one of Peter's finest moments, right? But you know what? It's an honest question. It's a carnal question to be sure, but it's an honest question nonetheless. And this is very important to notice, okay? What Peter wants from Jesus is a contract. He wants to get Jesus to promise something to him, right? He wants Jesus to give him his word. He wants to get Jesus on record. Peter wants assurances from Jesus that the life of sacrifice that the disciples are living, you know, is going to pay off somewhere down the road. And Jesus is going to teach Peter. He's going to teach all the disciples that are with him that day. And he's going to teach us this morning, right? When you're dealing with a God as gracious as our Heavenly Father is, it's best not to enter into a contract with him. Instead, it's better to leave the issue of rewards in the goodness and generosity of God. Because if we will, God will exceed, you know, every hope and expectation we possibly could have. Now, in verses 28 through 30, Jesus responds to Peter's question saying, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration... And the regeneration is the kingdom age, right? It's a thousand year of Christ here on earth, a thousand year reign of Christ here on earth. It occurs um, immediately after the great tribulation and right before the new heavens and new earth, right? Jesus says, verse 28, Assuredly, I say to you that the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, what Jesus is saying is that the apostles, they're going to sit on 12 thrones during the kingdom age. They're going to reign with him in a subordinate kind of way. And they're going to reign with him in Jerusalem. And their special, specific focus is, is going to be ruling over the 12 tribes of uh, Israel, which, by the way, is probably pretty good duty, right? Right. Uh, I'm sure in the minds of these Jewish disciples, they're thinking that's as good as it gets. And then in verse 29, Jesus says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Now, verse 28 is a promise to the disciples. 
But verse 29 is a promise to the rest of us, to all of us here this morning, right? Anyone who has given up, who has forsaken, who has sacrificed their homes, their families, their fortunes, in order to walk closer to Jesus, in order to fulfill a call that God has placed upon their lives, or if anyone are cast out of their homes or suffer some type of loss because of their faith in Christ. And believe me, you know, that happens every single day to Christians all around the world, right? Where they're cast out of their homes, they, they lose their families, right? Jesus says, we'll receive a hundredfold in this life. Now, we shouldn't look at this promise and think that Jesus is speaking in a material sense, right? Uh, he may choose to reward you uh, materially in this life, but he's speaking primarily uh, in a spiritual sense. What Jesus is saying is he will do more than make up for whatever we've sacrificed for his namesake. You know, the reality is it's impossible to give more to God than he's willing to give to us. And we need to let that minister and sink into our hearts. And then on top of all of that, Jesus declares as a reward after this life, right, there'll be everlasting life in heaven. If we're willing to share in Christ's warfare, we'll share in his triumph. And if we're willing to bear the cross, you know what, we'll receive a crown. And then Jesus says in verse 30, but many who are first will be last in the last verse. He's speaking of those like the rich young ruler. Many who are first in terms of advantages and blessings in this life will not have such an envious position in the life to come. And many others who had a less than desirable situation in this life will actually be fabulously wealthy for all eternity to come. Now, Jesus continues to respond to Peter's question and Peter's desire to nail down, you know, a contract with God to make sure he's not going to come up on the short end of the stick, you know, after spending the rest of his life serving the Lord, right? And Jesus responds with this parable now, the parables of the laborers. Chapter 20, verse 1, Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So we're told that there's this landowner and he, and he needs laborers to go and work uh, in his vineyard. You know, it's harvest time. And this was something that was very common in biblical times, right? In late September, early October, you know, when the landowner sees that it's time for harvest, you know, he recognizes that he needs help. You know, uh, someone who owned a vineyard in these days they didn't need a lot of workers during the year, right? He just needed to increase his labor force when it came time of harvest, especially if the grapes were really, really ripe and it looked like rain was coming, right? So when the grapes are super ripe and it rains on them, what can happen is it can actually ruin the grapes. So the landowner would need to get his uh, harvest in as fast as possible. He'd need to get it in in a hurry, right? So at harvest time, the landowner, he'd go to town and he'd pick up, hire some day laborers, right? Here in the parable, 
that Jesus is going to give us, the landowner represents God. And the laborers represent us as Christians who are called by God to join him in his field, in his harvest. His harvest isn't in a physical field. It's in a great spiritual field. And we're not working to harvest grapes, but we're called, right, to be laborers working in the harvest to harvest souls. Right? We're to be fulfilling the Great Commission. Right? We're to be working to bring every man, woman, and child to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it's really important for us to realize that every single one of us are called to be engaged in God's work on some level that results in the expansion of God's kingdom here on earth. Right? It's not enough to you know, be born again. It's not enough to get saved and then say, okay, now that I'm saved, you know, I'm just going to sit back and enjoy the ride. No, that's not to be our attitudes. That's not to be our attitudes at all. When we become Christians, our lives are to be an influence in this world, right, for the kingdom of God. We're to be an influence. A few examples of how we're to be an influence in this world would be Well, first of all, you know, our simple personal witness uh, for Christ that each of us have, right? No matter where we are, whether we're at school, whether we're in the neighborhood, whether we're at work, you know, no matter where we might be, we're to live a simple, obedient, Christ-like life, right? That alone is a huge witness for the kingdom of God. And all of us are called to do that. Another example of how we can be involved in the expansion of the kingdom of God and influencing the world is through the way that we raise our kids, right? We're to raise our kids in the things of the Lord and to encourage them to run the race and take the gospel further than where we've taken it, right? Another way uh, is through sharing the gospel with people that don't yet know Jesus as their Savior, Right? These are the kinds of things that all of us are called to do as Christians. But then there are also specific calls that God places on our lives. Each one of us have a unique call of God upon our lives for the expansion of the kingdom. Right? It's God's personal and specific call on our lives related to how he wants us to be involved uh, in Christian service. For instance... Prior to our call to come here for, to Truckee, we were called to be missionaries in Europe. But that's not everybody's call. For others, he may call them to children's ministry. You know, for others, uh, he may call them to, to serve in the back there with sound and video. Uh, he may give another person a gift of administration to another, a gift of leading to another, you know, prophecy or a word of knowledge. God can place upon Another person's uh, life, a call, giving them the gift of helps, helping those within the body that just need help. You know, he can call others to run for an elected position in the community where they can be an influence, a godly influence for the kingdom of God on the school board or on the city council. You know, God can use a person 
there to be a tremendous influence for the kingdom in that, in that arena. Somebody to stand up and speak lovingly against those things that are wrong and take a firm stand for those things that are right. And God knows that that's something that we need today, not only in our town, but in this state, in this nation, right? Or a gift of mercy, mentoring kids, you know, after school or even in the public schools. You know, not, not everything has to happen within the four walls of the church here. God may call someone here to lead a life group or to host a life group when we start up in the new year. The point is, we're all called to do something specific for the kingdom of God. Each of us is to be living this Christian life along with fulfilling a specific call in our life where we're called to do this or we're called to do that. And it may be a different call than what God has called me to do. I'm called and gifted to do one thing, you know, and you may be called and gifted to do something completely different. But each of us is to be working for the expansion of God's kingdom in accordance to his call and his gifting in our lives. Every Christian, every one of us needs to be in the mix. We need to be in the fight. We need to be part of what God's doing. You know, we need to be serving in a God-directed-by-the-Holy-Spirit way, influencing this world for his kingdom. And the Bible teaches that every single one, every single one of us, you know, uh, is not only called to some specific service for the sake of the kingdom, but he also supernaturally equips us to successfully fulfill that call in our lives. It's not that we need to go out there and just do it all in our own strength. That's not good at all. One thing that I think that's vitally important for us to remember is our faithfulness. Is that our faithfulness? My mind works faster than my mouth, you know? But is that our faithfulness to God's call upon our lives will one day be rewarded, right? Jesus is going to personally reward each one of us individually, right, for our faithfulness to the call of God on our life. Now, listen, when you start talking about, you know, how we're to be workers in the kingdom, fulfilling a call that's, that God's placed on our life, sometimes that's when people can begin to tune out, right? They say, yeah, yeah, of course, Gary, you know, you're wasting our time preaching the obvious. But I think, you know what, think about this. How many people become Christians and never give a single thought to what God has called them to do with their life? You know, much less trying to discover it. You know, they're, they're not trying to understand the spiritual gifts and how they're to operate in our lives for God's glory, for the work of the ministry. How many people just take salvation and never actually realize God wants to use them in this world for the kingdom, for his glory. So this is a very important parable that we're looking at this morning. It's very important for us to realize that not only does God call us to be an influence for him in this world, but then he's going to reward us for our faithfulness, for that spirit-directed service in and through our lives. Paul said to the 
church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 3, 8. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. You know, sometimes, think, sometimes Christians, you know, have this idea that our reward, reward shouldn't be something that, you know, we're thinking about, that we're dwelling on, that we're considering, or that we're concerned with. Like somehow it's unspiritual or it's, you know, a, a carnal thing if you think about it. Well, hey, guess what? Paul thought about it. Paul thought about it. It was a great joy and encouragement to him in his final days of life, right? To know that he ran the race faithfully. To know that his faithful service to the Lord was going to translate into rewards for God's glory, right? On the other side of this life, in the life to come, right? And not only did Paul care about it, but he encouraged Timothy to care about it also. Paul wrote to Timothy at the very end of his life, 2 Timothy uh, 4, verses 6 through 8. He said, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, and I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who love his appearance. His appearance. Jesus even instructed, instructed Christians to care about uh, rewards, you know? Uh, he, he, he told them, uh, you know, to care about the rewards because one day they were going to receive from him a reward for, his, for our faithfulness, right? He, he gave the parable of the talents where the faithful servant is greeted by Jesus himself at the end of a good and faithful life. You know, when the Lord said, Matthew 25, 23, Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Ruling over many things is a reference to rewards for faithfully handling the things that God has given us in this life. Verse 2, Matthew 20, verse 2. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. So this negotiation has taken place between the landowner and the laborers, and it was agreed upon that they would receive one denarius uh, for a day's worth of work. And that was the going rate for a blue-collar worker, you know, for a day's worth of work. It was a fair wage. Now, all of this is taking place sometime before six in the morning, right? We know this because when you hired a day laborer, you generally hired them for the entire day. They were to work from 6 a.m. in the morning to 6 p.m. at night. It was from sunup to sundown because that's when you had enough light to do the work. So, you know, of, of course, there's no generators, there's no lights back then. So they had to make every bit of daylight count, right? So these guys are getting hired to work out in the field from 6 in the morning to 6 in the evening. And again, it's very important to note and to understand this first group of workers, they're the only ones who go to work in the field who have a contract with the landowner. No one else demands a contract. Verse 3, And then he, the landowner, went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. 
And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I'll give you. So they went. And the landowner, he needs more workers now. He goes out about nine in the morning and he hires more workers and sends them into the vineyard again. It's very important that we notice there's no contract, right? The landowner uh, does not enter into uh, contractual negotiations with these guys, right? The landowner promises them that he'll give them whatever's right. In essence, he says, trust me. You know, I'll take good care of you, right? You won't be disappointed. Trusting in the goodness and the generosity of the landowner, these workers go out into the field to bring in the harvest. And of course, these workers going out in the field, you know, they, they're expecting less than a denarius uh, for their labor since they weren't working a full day. Verse 5, Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. So Jesus says, you know, this scene is repeated, you know, in the sixth hour about noon. Uh, and it's repeated again. He goes out again in the, the ninth hour about three o'clock in the afternoon. And this wouldn't have been something that was the least bit unusual. You know, as a landowner is seeing how things are going out in the field, he, he sees, you know, hey, we're a little bit behind schedule. He would go out and hire more people later in the afternoon to get some help. He'd go back and forth to the marketplace to hire more laborers as the need presented itself. In verse 6, And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle, and said to them, Why have you been standing idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you receive. So now it's in the 11th hour. It's the end of the workday. There's just one hour before quitting time. And he hires these laborers that haven't yet been hired uh, during the day. And the landowner wants to make sure he gets as much out of, you know, the harvest before he loses the daylight that he can, right? And you want to note here that we're plainly told that these workers aren't standing by idly because they're lazy. You know, that's not the case. The reason they've been standing idle, they declare to the landowner, is because no one has hired them. No one has given them an opportunity to work. And as soon as they had a chance to work, they immediately went and engaged in the harvest. And again, they entered into the harvest with no contract. That's the theme here. They're trusting completely in the goodness and the generosity of the landowner to pay them what's fair. Then the time, uh, you know, that we all look forward to, it comes around, it's payday, right? I mean, it's, it's time to get paid. I don't any of you shout out, but I mean, how many of you love payday? You know, I love payday. You know, I'm so thankful that the Lord allows me to do what he allows me to do, and through it, he provides for my family. You know, studying the word of God and sharing God's word uh, to me, what a joy it is. You know, last week, I taught a session at a, at a pastor's conference in South Asia uh, via Zoom. You know, and what a joy it was for me to encourage 65 pastors that are really facing difficult challenges. Some are facing literal persecution, physical persecution. But what a joy it was for me to, you know, open God's word and to encourage them to run the race for Jesus Christ. You know, it's such, 
Such a privilege to serve the Lord. Anyway, back to our study. In this culture, laborers got paid at the end of every day. According to the law of Moses, you had to pay these laborers at the end of each day. You know, they were basically living paycheck to paycheck, uh, so to speak. You know, they had to be paid on a daily basis so that they could feed their families in the evening. Uh, that's how thin their, their margins were. And so they were hired for the day and they were paid at the end of the day. Verse 8, Jesus continues, he says, So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to the steward, Call the laborer and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would have received more, right? And they likewise received each the denarius. So Jesus says that the landowners paid those who were hired at five o'clock. You know, those that were hired last, he pays them first. And those that were hired at six in the morning, you know, um, were paid after everyone else got paid. They, they were paid last. Now, surprisingly, as the pay is given out, those that were hired at five o'clock, you know, they were given a full denarii, right? Denarius, they were given a full day's wage for an hour of work. Now, put yourself in the shoes of those guys that were hired at six in the morning, right? What would be running through your head seeing those guys you know, that were hired last, given a full day's wage, given a full denarius for the little bit of work that they did. You know what? I'm guessing that if any of us were in that crowd and we saw those guys that only worked one hour get a full day's wage, you know, I'm going to guess that each one of us, even if we weren't math geniuses, we would start to do the math, right? You know, one denarius for an hour's worth of work I've worked 12 hours. You know what? Uh, I'm guessing each one of us would expect 12 denarii, right? I think that each one of us would call our spouse and say, honey, get that leather sofa you've been wanting because I made a fortune today, right? You know, I'll bet you anything. If these laborers who got hired first didn't think, right, that they were going to get 12 denarii, at the very least, I bet you, they thought they were going to get two or three or four times what those who worked one hour received. But to their surprise and to their dis disappointment, they got one denarius for their labor just as their contract stated. And in verse 11 and 12, we see their response. Verse 11, when they received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, these last men who worked only one hour and you made them equal to us, who have borne the burden in the heat of the day, the laborers that were hired first, they began to complain against the landowner. And their complaint was that it's totally unfair to pay these other guys, you know, the same as we've received, not only because they, they hadn't worked the entire day, and we have, but also because we worked through the toughest, hottest part of the day, right? In their minds, it was completely wrong to make all the workers equal to one another. 
And again, I bet you, if any of us were in that situation, we would probably agree. We'd probably be nodding our heads. Yeah, that's right. That's not right. Yeah. And again, if any of us were there at the very least, you know, this idea of unfairness would be bouncing around inside of our heads if we didn't, if we didn't make any outward signs of agreement. And this is what troubled and disappointed the laborers that worked all day. And again, we probably would be troubled and disappointed by it too. And it's okay to admit that because that's the attitude that Jesus wants to deal with through this parable. The fact of the matter is, during the course of our service to the Lord, you know what, we're going to run into a lot of things that just doesn't seem right, just doesn't seem fair by our definitions, right? Uh, the Lord is overly generous with his grace in ways that, you know, at times are very hard to understand, you know, uh, in ways that are sometimes hard to accept. You know, I've been serving the Lord since I was just a whippersnapper, a wee little lad. I don't know why I go to a Scottish accent or something. Oh, wee little lad. Uh, what's that? One more time. Don't you know? Don't you know? A wee little lad, don't you know? You know, I've walked with him and I've struggled for 40 years and some kid comes along with his ministry and it just takes off right there in my backyard. You know, and he's never born in the heat of the day. He doesn't know a fraction of what I know about the Bible. You know, God can be funny with his grace. And in verse 13 through 15, we have the landowner's response to the disgruntled laborers. Uh, but he answered one of them and said, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give uh, this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things or is your eye evil because I'm good? You know, the landowner reminds them that he had done them no wrong by being generous towards these other laborers. They negotiated a contract and agreed upon a denarius for their service. And he paid them a denarius, right? The reality is this. Their complaint wasn't that the landowner was unfair to them, but that he had been so generous to the others. That's the reality. They would have been completely happy had they received one denarius for their day's worth of work, and those other guys had received a twelfth of a denarius. Right? That, they would have been okay with that. That would have been just fine with them. And the landowner tells them that he had been completely fair with them and that their problem wasn't with him, but their problem was their own expectations the expectations they placed on him. And the landowner told him, go their way after explaining to them that he could do whatever he wanted to do. It was his money. He could do with it whatever he pleased. And in verse 15, the landowner rebukes them for their jealousy, saying, or is your eye evil because I'm good? An evil eye, a jealous eye. It's an envious eye. And Jesus is saying, that it's only an envious or jealous eye 
that would uh, find fault with the goodness and the generosity of the landowner. So the moral of the parable is found in verse 16. He says, so the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus is saying that there's going to be surprises in the matter of rewards when we stand before the bema seat of Christ or the reward seat of Christ following this life. So I want to close with three short lessons. You know, what we're to learn, what the takeaway of this parable is regarding uh, Christian service, which is, again, something that we're all called to in this life as Christians. So first, this parable teaches us that our eternal reward for service is not based on how long we've served the Lord, right? It's based on how faithful we've been to the opportunities that God has given us. Let me say it again. Our eternal reward for service is not based on how long we've served the Lord, right? But how faithful we've been to the opportunities God has presented to us, right? Each person in this parable receives the same reward because each person in the parable made the most of their opportunity, right? The 6 a.m. people did, as well as the third hour people and the sixth, the ninth, and the eleventh hour workers. They're all they all faithfully served, right, and made the most of their opportunity, even though they didn't work the same amount of time. Each laborer entered into the harvest when they were called, and they were all called to enter into the harvest at different times. You know what? Some people are called at the start of the day, right? And these 6 a.m. people represent those people that are saved very early on in life. You know, they're raised in a Christian home. And they begin serving the Lord very early in life. Then you have those people that are called at 9 a.m., the third hour. And they represent those, you know, who get saved and begin serving the Lord with a quarter of their life already gone, right? They're young adults now. Then there are those that are called at the sixth hour. And they're the people that receive Christ as their Savior and begin to serve Him after their life is half spent. You know, and they're, they're in their 30s and 40s. And then the ninth hour servants, they represent those who come to the Lord and serve him when three quarters of their life is already behind them. They come to the Lord, you know, in their late 50s and 60s. And then the 11th hour people are those that get saved, begin to serve the Lord very, very late in life. And the parable is not saying that a man who wastes his whole life living for the flesh and then comes to the Lord late in life, is going to have the same reward as a Christian who's serving the Lord faithfully all their life. That's not what the uh, parable is saying. But what the parable does teach us is if two people take full advantage of opportunity, their opportunity to serve the Lord, when that opportunity comes their way, they're going to receive the same reward, whether it comes early in life or whether it comes later in life. Secondly, this parable teaches us who have walked with the Lord for a long time, served him for a long time. We can't properly judge God's heart towards those who come to the Lord later in life and have uh, shorter opportunities to serve him, right? We tend to think of fairness based on, you know, hours. We're tempted to think that a person 
that served the Lord for 60 years is going to receive a greater reward than that person who's only served the Lord for 10 years. But the Lord may reward them equally. And it's not that the person who served the Lord for 60 years is getting less than he deserves, but it's that, that God gives the other one, we think, more than he deserves. Again, that's the problem with us judging it. And the problem with us judging by outward appearance uh, regarding what's right for God to give to, to others is that there's far more that goes into the decision-making process that, that God you know, considers far more than, than we would ever see, right? Far more than we could ever know. And if we knew it, I'm not really sure we would allow it to enter into the thinking and decision-making process for us. For example, some people are raised in a godly Christian home, right? They put their faith in Christ at a very early age, and it just seems like a very easy thing where they just kind of you know, enter into a life, they slip into a, a ministry, just this life of service, serving the Lord. And a person makes every opportunity that's given to him. But another person may be born in a Muslim family, comes from Iran or Iraq or maybe Saudi Arabia, you know, some closed country, right? And they spend their entire childhood and adult life studying the Quran, being indoctrinated into that religion, right? Never, never hearing the gospel. But then one day, while they're in their 60s, right, they meet Jesus, they place their faith in, in him, and they're saved. And not only is most of their life behind them, you know, and their years of service to the Lord much shorter, but the harvest field that they're serving in is, you know, much more difficult in many ways. And God takes all these things into consideration, you know, he takes these things into account, the culture that a person is from, you know, the obstacles that culture represents to someone placing their faith in Christ, the age when they heard the gospel, you know, their religious background, uh, the difficulty of Christian, Christian service and the part of the world that they're serving him in. You know, there's a lot more involved than just, you know, seniority and time and service going into these decisions. And only God is aware of all of these things. And only God is aware of the opportunities that each person has. And we need to realize when we talk about all things being equal is that all things are almost never equal in this world. You know, each person and situation is different. And God knows it, right? And he knows how to rightfully judge what we know nothing of, right? A single mom faithfully raising her kids in the Lord all alone. Then, you know, another woman lives her entire life as a missionary in South America, risking her life. And yet both of them receive their denarius having taken full advantage of the opportunities that had been given to them. You know, there's a lot more than meets the eye in all of this. And Jesus is telling us that we really don't know everything that's necessary in order to come to a conclusion about the faithfulness of another person, much less what kind of reward they should receive. And Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. You know, in the church at Corinth, man, it was a messed up. It was a messed up carnal church. When you got the call to pastor that church, you're like, pass, right? 
But he says in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, he said, for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Paul says those that compare themselves among themselves are not wise. Why? Because another person is not the basis of comparison for me, whether or not I'm being faithful, right? God can take, you know, another man or woman, call them to do something, and he gives them greater grace. He gives them greater influence. He gives them greater giftings. I mean, they step up to the plate, and every time they hit a home run, well, you know what? I step up to the plate, and I strike out nine out of ten times, and somehow that brings glory to God, right? The other person, uh, you know, he's engaged in something very successful to the Lord. And if I look at him and what he's doing, you know, I can be tempted to think, wow, you know what? What I'm doing for the Lord is nothing compared to that, that guy, what he's doing. You know what? Maybe I should just quit. You know what? I, I'm, do, I'm not doing for, for the kingdom anything close to what they're doing. And listen, we don't have the same giftings. We don't have the same calling. We don't have the same anointing. We don't have the same opportunities presented to us. But then there's another guy on the other hand, you know, or the other end of the spectrum, you know, and he's doing next to nothing for the Lord as a Christian. You know, he has just this little thing going on and it should be way bigger than what it is. And, and they're slacking, right, in terms of being faithful to the Lord. And we can look at them and think they're the basis of comparison. And then we say, praise the Lord, man. You know what? I'm doing so much better than that other guy, right? But God has entrusted to us maybe three or four times the gifting and anointing and opportunities that he's given the other guy. And on the other hand, on one hand, if we compare ourselves to one another, we can tend towards condemnation by seeing, you know, every time seeing that guy doing so much more or if God's entrusted so much more to that guy. You know, and on the other hand, if we judge ourselves by a, a situation, we judge our situation, what we're doing by what somebody else is doing, you know, we might be tempted, right, towards pride seeing that we're doing so much more, so much more than that other guy. You know what? It's just not wise to think in these terms, Paul says. The safest thing for us to do is discover what God has called us to do and then be faithful to that call with everything that's within us to the fullest extent of our ability. You know, we can't look at others to discover what we're to do or how good we're doing it. Right? Paul also wrote to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 4, 2, 5. He said, moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. But, we, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged uh, by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I uh, know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring both to light the hidden things of darkness and reveals, uh, reveal the counsel of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. What Paul is saying is 
hey, I don't even judge my own ministry because I don't know perfectly what kind of anointing anointing the Lord has given me or the full extent of the gifts that the Lord has given me, right? I don't fully know what the Lord, when he looks at my life, what he expects me to accomplish in this life versus what I think I need to accomplish. And Paul is saying that he wasn't sure if he was doing a good job, right? If he was doing great things for the Lord in ministry or not. But instead of coming to any kind of conclusions regarding how he was doing in ministry, Paul purposed in his heart to take full advantage of the opportunities to be faithful and walk through the open doors that God presented to him, knowing that his reward, right, that there is a reward, and that, you know what, it's going to take care of itself. God's going to do what's right. The third thing we learn from this parable is for any of us in the middle of, of a life of service, you know, a life of sacrifice to the Lord, and all service to the Lord, you know, requires sacrifice. You can't be like Christ without sacrifice. I can't grow in maturity uh, without sacrifice. Every one of us, as we're faithful to God's call upon our lives, right, it will mean sacrifice of a lot of things in order to fulfill that call to be faithful in that call to him, right? And we're going to be confronted with sacrifice in our, in our lives. And it's at that point in time that we may be tempted to think, I wonder if all this sacrifice, I wonder if all the long hours, I wonder if all the rejection, all the persecution, if all the labor and effort, if all these things are going to be worth it one day. Right? And some of us might be tempted, like Peter, to ask for some kind of contract or guarantee from God this morning, right? The, that one day it's all going to be properly rewarded. Well, Jesus says through this parable, it's worth it, right? It's worth it now, right now, and one day it's going to be overwhelmingly obvious just how worth it it is. And the reason we can be assured right now just how worth it it is going to be is because we're involved with a very gracious and a very generous landowner, right? And as we simply trust God the Father to do what's best for us in this area, none of us are going to be disappointed, right? We'll just, if we just leave the issue of rewards in God's loving hand, and we just stay focused on the things that God has called us to do, you know, God's reward will exceed our wildest dreams. Paul knew this to be true. I've never met anyone who could say, you know, I've had a tougher time in ministry than the Apostle Paul. I mean, you know what? I think ministry doesn't get any harder than what Paul faced. And yet Paul had an experience that was more than able to keep him going strong you know, in his service to God in spite of the things that he faced, right? And it's when the Lord gave him a vision of heaven. Paul said, Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory with uh, which we shall be revealed in us. He's talking about heaven and eternity there, right? In the King James Version, where it says, for I consider, Romans 8, 18, 
It's translated, for I reckon. You know, I think Paul must have been a hillbilly, maybe, you know. Well, I reckon, probably pulled up on, well, I reckon, you know. But the word reckon, it just literally means to weigh in the balances, right? What Paul is saying is you can take all the hardship that you could possibly ever face and experience in a life of service to the Lord and put it on a scale over here. And then you could take all the glory and all the reward, you know, that will come from a life of service and place it on, on the scale over here. And you know what? There'd be absolutely no comparison. That's what Paul is saying. No comparison between the two. The glory and the reward that's ahead of those that give their life to serving the Lord will not be a disappointment. I promise you, right? Just how beautiful do you think heaven really is? You know what? This is what I think. I think if you were to spend two minutes in heaven and you come back to this earth, you would be spoiled for the rest of your life for ordinary life on this earth. You know, the Lord uh, gave Paul a vision of heaven and he couldn't begin to describe it to anyone. It was so beautiful. He said it would be criminal to even to try to describe it in words Words wouldn't do justice to what he just heard. Forget about what he saw. He said, you know what? Uh, it would be criminal. It couldn't do it justice. Human language would mar the reality of how wonderful the things I just heard in heaven were, right? And Paul would resoundingly say to each one of us, each one of us here this morning, it's totally worth it. It's beyond worth it. Right? You can't begin to imagine just how worth it it is. Is faithfulness to God's call upon our lives worth the sacrifice? You know what, if you're wondering that this morning, and most of us will wonder that at some point in our service to the Lord, Jesus from this parable says, yes, it is. Stay faithful. You're trusting in a good, gracious, generous, very, very generous God you'll not be displeased with the way he'll reward you for your service, right? If you're here today or watching online and you don't know Jesus as your Savior and you're thinking, you know what, my life is half over or, you know, I'm in my 50s and 60s. You know, I'm 55, 65 years old. My life is mostly spent. What good is it for me to start trying today, you know, walking with the Lord, serving him? You know, it's probably too late to make a difference. It's never too late. It's never too late to be saved. It's never too late to make a difference for God's kingdom in this world. Really, Gary, you're just saying that, you know, you're just saying that because that's what pastors have to say. Why don't you give me an example? Okay, you know, uh, how about the thief on the cross? Talk about a last minute thing, right? Two thieves on the cross hanging there next to Jesus. One of them with just hours left to live places his faith in Jesus. And what can he do with the few hours that uh, he has left to live in this world, especially while he's hanging there on the cross? He witnesses to the other thief about the sinless life of Jesus Christ, right? He made the most of the opportunity that he had. And he'll have the reward of someone who served God all their life. And how many people throughout history has come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior through the testimony 
of that thief hanging there on the cross. We have no idea what God can do with just minutes left in a life here upon this earth if we'll just give it totally and completely to him, right? If you haven't yet given your life to Jesus Christ and would like to this morning, you know, if you'd like to begin a life of, of meaning, a, a life of service to him this morning, the Bible says salvation is a free gift, right? It's all you have to do is just receive it. And the way you receive it is by turning from your sins and turning to Christ, right? Turning to him, confessing your sins, saying, God, I've sinned against you and I'm sorry. Please forgive me, Jesus. Come into my life. Give me the power to live for you. I give you my life right now. Use me for your glory. And Romans 10, 9 and 10, some of my favorite verses. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The biblical definition of believe is to rest your entire life and future in his hands, to surrender everything to him, right? If you'd like to do that this morning, you know, if you're here, you can come up after service. I'd love to pray with you and answer any questions you may have. If you're watching online, you can give the church office a call. We'd love to pray with you, get you started in this walk with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you. <clears throat> thank you. Lord, for what you've done in my life, for what you've made of the mess of my life. Lord, what you've done in our life, Lord, we are all headed for hell, some of us running faster than others, and yet you loved us enough to pursue us, to show us your goodness, to show us your grace. Lord, and I just pray that each one of us would seriously consider and purpose in our heart to run after you with all our strength, with all our soul, with all our might, with all of our mind, to be totally given over to you this morning. Lord, this day would be a turning point in our service to you. Lord, we give you praise, we give you glory. In your name we pray, amen.